you are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer together. Heavenly Father, God, all glory and honor belongs to you all strength, all power, all wisdom. It's all yours, Lord. All the glory uh, belongs uh, to you. We thank you for uh, inviting us, God, to, uh, to be part of your family, to see your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, for showing us who you are, Lord. We pray now that as your word is open, God, that that we would hear not my voice, Lord, but that we would hear your voice, that you would move so powerfully by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been in this series uh, called Built to Last for a couple of weeks now, and we're focusing on uh, building some things, focusing on some things, zeroing in on some things so that as a church, the things that we do will last here on earth. And we're celebrating that we've, we've been established as a church now for seven years and we want to focus on things so that seven years from now, 70 years from now, that we'll still be there. We don't want to focus on trends or things that are coming and going. We want a church that is built to last here on earth and then also on into eternity. We want to be building a church that is focused on the things that will matter for all of eternity. And in order to do that, with that sort of look forward to what God could do and will do if we focus on the right things, the type of church that God would build in us and through us, as we're looking forward, we find that God is actually calling us to look backward, to look back to the early church, to the book of Acts, to see how God built the church in those early important days because what God built back then was built to last. And now thousands of years later, we are still benefiting from the building that they did. And so what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Acts. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up or holler. Make sure that you have a copy of the Bible in your hand. We've been going through the book of Acts. And each week, we are going through the whole book of Acts. And looking at the early church from the first day until the the very end of the book to try to see how was that early church built. Last week we looked at prayer and how just about every chapter in the book of Acts is punctuated with prayer. They were praying all the time. And it was such a foundational component to who they were as a church. And today, we're going to see how preaching, how the Word of God, how the teaching and powerful explanation of the Word of God is what God uses to build His church. He used it back in Acts, and He's using it today in Brampton. And so... During the course of this sermon, we're going to go through a survey of the whole book of Acts, looking at it from the perspective, from the vantage point of what role did preaching play in the early church. So Acts uh, chapter 1 begins with the disciples. They've just spent uh, uh, many days with Jesus. He's been ascended up to heaven. They're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
And then the Spirit arrives in Acts chapter 2, and some incredible things happen. Tongues of fire appear, they come over their heads, they start to speak in all of these foreign languages. They go out onto the street, all these people who were gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost, they're trying to make sense of what is going on, how come all of these guys are speaking in my native tongue? And these incredible signs and wonders happen, but it's important to make note That in Acts chapter 2, the purpose of the sign was to prepare the way for the sermon. The reason for the miracle is because there is a message. And some churches get this backwards. Some churches are so focused on the signs and on the miracles and on speaking in tongues or on prophecy as though, and the sermon is supposed to teach people how to do those things as, as if those things are the most important thing. That is not the most important thing. Anytime where you see tongues, anytime where you see a miracle, anytime where you see a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, it's for one reason and one reason only. It's to point people to the scripture. The sign points people to scripture. The miracle is there so that people can hear the message. And so Peter then takes this opportunity to give, and what we're going to find here, this is the first Christian sermon ever given. Uh, for thousands of years, uh, around all of the different continents, Sunday after Sunday, how many different sermons have been given in Christian churches, gatherings just like this. This is the very first one. And this is the one that shows us what preaching ought to be. What is true Christian preaching all about? Here's Here's the first thing I want you to make note of. True Christian preaching, preaching that will build a church in a way that is to last, is preaching that has Christ-centered interpretation. Christ-centered interpretation. A Peter a gathers everyone, everyone's attention in verse 14. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And what he does here is he quotes the book of Joel. He looks at an Old Testament passage of Scripture. Every good Christian sermon should start with Scripture. It's rooted in the living and active Word of God. But he doesn't just teach the historical context of Joel. He doesn't just teach the literary features of Joel. He doesn't just teach some of the uh, nuances of the Hebrew language as it's found in Joel. No, he teaches how the book of Joel, like the rest of the Old Testament, points to Jesus Christ. It is a Christ-centered interpretation. And so Peter quotes from the book of Joel, and then you look down at verse 25. David says concerning him. Now he's quoting Psalm 16, a Christ-centered interpretation of Psalm 16. Go up to verse 34. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, and he again quotes Psalm 110. We see all of these Old Testament passages being taught for the purpose of pointing people to Jesus Christ. The sign pointed people to the sermon, and the sermon must point people to the Savior. Every sermon must be Christ-centered. If a church has preaching that is simply giving historical context, interesting facts, moral instruction, 
That is not true Christian preaching. True Christian preaching must always point people to the Savior. And that's what we see Peter doing. He takes Joel, he takes the book of Psalms, and he interprets them in such a way that they point to Jesus. Now, how did Peter come up with this? Was he just sort of, you know, flipping through his Bible and maybe I'll do this and maybe I'll do that and oh, maybe this, this, this could be about Jesus or I'll just use this as an analogy? No, Peter wasn't just making this up as he went along. In Luke chapter 24, remember, Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. Luke is part one, Acts is part two. In Luke 24, he told the disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, notice this, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures, there are things concerning Jesus. And so that's why at Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton, whether we're talking about Genesis, whether we're talking about Revelation or something in between, every sermon has to contain the Word of God, and then every sermon has to take you to the Son of God. And it, it must be a Christ-centered interpretation. Otherwise, you just end up with good moral teaching or learning historical facts. But that is not true Christian preaching. What Peter does is he takes the... Old Testament and brings it to life and shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of what, is, as what, is, of what has been written. Sometimes the Old Testament is filled with promises, promises that God says, I will do this. Sometimes there's prophecies or predictions about who Jesus is. Sometimes there is a, a pattern that is laid out or a picture that is shown that what happens in this Old Testament character's life is similar to what's going to happen in Jesus' life. So there's promises, there's prophecies, there's predictions, there's patterns. But all of these things must point to Jesus Christ. So he unpacks for them how Jesus is the Lord. Take a, take a closer look with me at verse 27 of chapter 2. This is when Peter is talking about Psalm 16. And he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that means the grave, or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then look at, look at how he explains it. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. So David wrote in Psalm 16, which is quoted there in verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to the grave. Now, was that true of David? Well, Peter's making it clear. David did die. But there were a number of times where David should have died, right? But he didn't. Like going up against Goliath, he probably should have been in the grave after that, but he wasn't. And Saul was trying to kill him, and yet David was rescued from the grave a number of times. David should have been dead, but ended up being Alive, And what David experienced in a small way was a picture or a pattern of what would happen with Jesus. Jesus should have been dead. He was crucified. He was laid in a tomb. But God did not abandon him to Hades or to the grave, but raised him up. So Peter in verse 29 says, hey, we got, we got David's tomb right here. We know he's dead. So we know that David in Psalm 16 must be talking about someone greater 
Verse 30, it says, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and have receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured it out he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so he is making it clear that Psalm 16 points to Jesus. There is a Christ-centered interpretation. That Jesus suffered and died on the cross for all of our sins. And he was buried and yet he rose again to show that if we place our faith in him, that he truly died for us, that just the way that Jesus was raised, we too can walk in newness of life. A Christ-centered interpretation. And notice how all of this is happening once the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit came, filled Peter, gave him the ability to preach and to teach this way. And notice, Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will glorify me. When the Spirit is present in preaching, the Son of God is seen with greater clarity and with greater beauty. It's, and when preaching happens, it's not just a man speaking. It is the Spirit. The Spirit was speaking through Peter. And when the Spirit speaks, something powerful happens. You see, look at the response in verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Here's the second characteristic of, of true Christian preaching, preaching that will build a church that's built to last. It's heart-piercing communication. It is heart-piercing communication. Peter, filled with the Spirit, teaching the Scriptures, is teaching in such a way that is impacting them at their heart, the very core of their being. He wasn't just telling some sappy, sentimental stories to get them all emotional. No, you see, the heart is not strictly our emotion. In the Bible, the heart is also where we do our thinking, and it's where we make our choices. It's our mind, our emotions, and our will. And so these people were cut to the heart at the very core of who they, who they are. The preaching spoke to them right where they were, right where they were at. And that's what God's word does. That's what good preaching does. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see, good preaching, true Christian preaching is always applicational. It always leads to some sort of action step that needs to be taken. Because the heart is not just emotions, it's not just our mind, it's also our will. That's why they asked. They were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? We're always aiming at the heart where your feeling happens, where your thinking happens, where your decisions happen. Because if we can change the way you feel, if we can change the way you think, then that will change the way you behave. And that's what true heart preaching involves. That's what true preaching does. It pierces uh, the heart. I love this verse. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the, the word of God is living and active it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, notice, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's not just emotion. It's how you think, and it's your intentions. It's your will. 
And so God's word, only God's word can do that. Only God's word can lead to that kind of heart transformation, heart-piercing communication. And here's, here's Peter's answer to the question, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He tells them, you want to know what to do? I'll tell you what to do. You need to repent. To repent means to turn. It simply means that I was walking away from God and I was doing my own thing and I was running after sin and now I've heard about Jesus. My heart has been pierced and so now I am now turning. I am now living my life in a completely different direction. And the the way that we symbolize that repentance, the way that we show the world and our family and our church that that transformation has happened is through getting baptized. Peter said, every one of you, all of you, should be baptized. Baptism is a symbol. It's not baptism that saves a person, but it's baptism that symbolizes that that salvation has taken place. The symbolism is very simple. You go underwater. You're not breathing under there. It's a sign of death. Just as Jesus died, you were saying, I deserve to die, but Jesus died instead of me. And so I am going to identify with Jesus' death for me on the cross when I go under the water. And then coming out of the water and breathing fresh air, it's it's the newness of life. It's identifying that your life has been changed. And it's a double metaphor because it all happens in water, which is a symbol for cleansing and refreshment, that my life has been changed. If your heart has been pierced by the message of Jesus Christ, you must be baptized. The people who heard the first Christian sermon, the people who heard for the very first time who Jesus is, the Son of God, and why he died to pay for our sins, if that has truly touched your heart, then you need to be baptized. Take a look at verse 41. It says, so those who received his word were baptized. If you're here today and you say that you are a Christian and you've received the word of the cross, you've received the message of who Jesus is and what he has done, if you say you've received the word but you haven't been baptized, you need to see here in black and white that there is a disconnection there. That people who receive the word get baptized. Now you might be here today and you might be thinking, well, listen, I'm, I just have all these fears and you don't know my past, and you don't know, I, I, I don't deserve it. Listen, no one deserves it. I, I had someone right here uh, between services say, I want to get baptized, but, but you, I've, I've got all this sin in my past, and the first thing out of my mouth was, me too. Me too. We've all, we all stumble in different ways. No one deserves, there's no... There's, there's no cleanliness requirement before you get into the water of baptism. That the, the point is that we all need to be cleansed. And some of us, we, we, have these, we have these anxieties, these fears. The fear of water is a very, a very real thing. Fear of public speaking, fear of doing anything where other people are looking at you. That, that is a very real 
fear. And one of the things about fear is when we just kind of keep it to ourselves and we just mull it over in our mind, is we assume that we're the only people who have that fear. And we just get all wound up in our own little thoughts and our own little fears and we assume that, that no, one, no, one, no one else is afraid of water. No one else is afraid of, of having attention on them or public speaking or whatever that may be. But 3,000 people got baptized that day. Chances are a good number of them were afraid of water. This is not a culture that grew up with like swimming lessons and going to the YMCA. Chances are there was a lot of people there that were afraid of water. Afraid of letting someone else put you under. There was probably a lot of people there that were very shy and timid. And the thought of all of these eyes looking at them while they say that they're a follower. Listen. The early church had people with the same fears as you. This church is filled with people with the same fears as you. And we have a, we have a, a course coming up. It's a simple baptism course. We want to walk through in greater detail than I'm doing right now about what baptism is, what it means, and to help prepare people to, to take that step of obedience because it needs to happen. And, and so we, we need to we need to understand that if, if you have those fears, let's talk about them. Because you're not the first person that's shared those kinds of fears or those kinds of hesitations. If, going back to verse 41, those who received the word were baptized. Those who received the word. Some, some people might be here to say, well, you know, I was, I was baptized as, a, as an infant, as a child. Well, listen. I know that your, your parents probably loved you and wanted what was best for you, and that might have been the, the denomination or the religion that you were brought up in, but you can't, when you're a child, you can't receive the word. Step one is to receive the word. Step two is to be baptized. And so the, the, there weren't any babies baptized in Acts chapter 2. Only people who had received the word were the ones who were baptized. Christ-centered interpretation, heart-piercing communication, a desire to obey. What shall we do? And so they decided, they decided uh, to follow and to get baptized. Now also make note of this, number three, unwavering devotion. Unwavering devotion. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We talked about this first last week about prayer. And we're going to see that prayer and the preaching of God's word go hand in hand. There's so many verses. They're, they're right there together. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's so key for us to understand that. That if we're devoted to prayer, we've got to be devoted to preaching and vice versa. Before the uh, before the services, we gather as elders and we pray. We pray for all the parts of the service. We pray for the Harvest Kids teachers who are going to be teaching. We pray for the leaders who are leading Harvest Essentials and Christianity Explored right now. We pray that as God's word is being taught, that his spirit would empower the people who are teaching and touch, pierce the hearts of the people who are listening. But notice how they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Hearing the word of God is not just a one-time thing. These early Christians didn't just sort of repent and get baptized and then, okay, I'm saved, that's great. I walked down an aisle. I raised my hand. I know I'm going to heaven. No, the people who were truly saved devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And this is, this is exactly what Jesus said ought to happen. Our mission statement is to fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. And in the great commission, Jesus said in Matthew 28, check it out here. Matthew 28, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And we just covered how in Acts 2, those who received his word were baptized. But Jesus didn't just say, go make as many people get baptized as possible. The second part of what he said was teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. So there's baptizing and there's teaching. What do we see in Acts chapter 2? People got baptized and then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We need to be a church of unwavering devotion to the word of God. Wanting to learn it, wanting to grow in it, and to apply it to our lives. Unwavering devotion. Then the story continues to roll along. Acts chapter 3, we have another miracle, and that miracle leads to a message. We have a sign that led to the scriptures. The apostles get arrested and eventually freed. Then we come to Acts chapter 4, and they're praying. And remember, what did they pray? They prayed Psalm 2. They prayed with their Bibles open because they had an unwavering devotion to the word of God. Acts chapter 5, you've got Ananias and Sapphira. The apostles get arrested again. This time they get beaten for their faith. Then we come to Acts chapter 6, and here's a real test to devotion, where now cultural and racial tension starts to rise among the thousands of people that are part of this church in Jerusalem. And you've got the, this group of sort of um, uh, Hebrew uh, who, people who are uh, Jewish both culturally and ethnically and, and religiously. Then you've got this other group, Hellenists, who were more influenced by Greek culture. They were Jewish by ethnicity but not culturally. And they weren't getting along. And they were accusing one another of showing favoritism to their group. And the apostles are right there in the middle of it. And they're trying to figure out what to do. And they come to this conclusion and resolution in Acts 6 verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There's those two things together again. Prayer and preaching go hand in hand. But the apostles had to draw a line in the sand and saying, you know what, serving tables and making sure people get fed, that's important. But we want to be focused on prayer and the word. And so they set apart these, these other people who are then tasked with the responsibility of looking after, making sure everyone gets fed. And then take a look at chapter 6, verse 7. This is the result. And the word of God continued to increase. They made a decision. They made a decision to focus on the word, and then the word continued to increase so that there was more people to feed, so that there was more people to reach and look after. Because they made that decision, we're going to focus on prayer and the word. Stephen is one of those people that was serving tables. He gets arrested in chapter 6. He gives an incredible sermon in chapter 7. Again, it's rooted in a Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament. We don't have time to go through it now, but from Abraham to Jacob and Isaac, right through to Moses and David and Solomon, he retells the whole story of the Old Testament. 
Stephen is eventually killed. He's the first Christian to lay down his life for his faith. And after Stephen dies, uh, Saul, who hasn't been converted yet, is an instigator of a just widespread persecution. And the Christians start to spread out. And let's take a look at our organizational chart of how the book of Acts kind of fits together. We looked at this last week. Acts chapter 1 to 7, everything happens in Jerusalem. Then God uses persecution to spread them out into Judea and Samaria. And this is what Jesus said in chapter, chapter 1 verse 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So chapter 8 marks that transition point. They start going around sharing in different places. Look at chapter 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Again, it's the word of God that's being taught. Then we're introduced to a guy named Philip. And Philip in verse um, 26 gets told by an angel. Do you see that there? Chapter 8 verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now Philip, had been, he was being greatly used by God. He was sharing his faith with all kinds of people. He wanted to be among people. And then this angel says, I'm going to take you somewhere that's a desert. No people. Would have been really frustrating for Philip. But Philip chose to obey. He, he listened to what the angel told him. But God was concerned about one specific person. He wanted the gospel to continue to grow and to be spread down into Africa. And so Philip encounters this Ethiopian. Look at verse 30. Or verse 29 again, it says, The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his a chariot. And so uh, the angel sends him there. The Spirit then leads him. That's the guy I want you uh, to talk to. And so he goes up to his chariot, verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before it shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life was taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophecy say this, about himself or about someone else? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Again, it's rooted in the Bible. Philip was told by an angel to go to the desert. Once he's in the desert, the spirit told him to go talk to that Ethiopian. But when Philip actually opens his mouth, what does he use? The scripture. He doesn't say, hey, you know what, I talked to angels, so if I'm going to share something with you, it's probably going to come from an angel, a special revelation from God. I'm going to let the Spirit, no, it was the Word of God. The Spirit of God wants to use the Word of God. Some people think they need to go to, go, go to some uh, big event or, or some special thing with some special prophet person who talks as though they talk to angels and God told me this and the Spirit told me that. Listen, if the Spirit's going to tell you anything, he's going to tell you to read the Word of God. It's exactly what he did with Philip here. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So he, he started in the prophet Isaiah told him the good news. Chapter 9, 
Paul gets saved. Chapter 10, Cornelius gets saved. Chapter 11, Peter reports back about what happens with Cornelius. Chapter 12, James, the first apostle um, to get executed, he lays down his life. One of the sons of Zebedee, the brother of John, one of the inner circle of Jesus, the, the main three, Peter, James, and John, went everywhere with Jesus, and now James is dead. People are expecting Peter to die too, but because of the power of prayer, he is set free. And then we come to Acts chapter 13. And Acts chapter 13 is another transition point. Acts chapter 13 is where we begin to see a transition between Peter as the main character, now to Paul being the main character, and a transition from Judea and Samaria. Now we're going to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. We talked about chapter 13 uh, last week. Look at verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit set apart, said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the church at Antioch. This is really far, far north, the northern tip of uh, Judea, uh, even beyond it. And this, Ant this church in Antioch was going to become the sending church for a number of missions trips that Paul was involved on. And so, verse 4, so being sent out by the Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed, notice this, the word of God. So let's take a look at a map here. So this is the, the first mission trip. So they started up in Antioch. That's the, the northern tip of where they were. They went to Cyprus, which was an island, and then went into the region of Galatia, and they started to spread the word of God there. Now look at verse, um, now look at verse 49. So they're they started sharing the word of God. And then look at verse 49. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The region was Galatia. The book of Galatians was written to Christians in that whole region. How did the word spread to the whole region? Was that because Paul and Barnabas went to every place in that region? No. They brought the word to that region and then the word spread. It wasn't about a person. It was about a message. And the word of God spread. If you make it about a person, you limit what the word can do. It wasn't about a person. And all they did was proclaim the word and then people could hear the word and then they could go and share the word. So that the whole region started to hear the word of God. Chapter 14, they end up going back to Antioch to get ready for their next trip. Before that trip, in chapter 15, they have to go back to uh, Jerusalem because to, to, everyone's trying to figure out how do we help all these non-Jewish people um, live lives as Christians. So they have this big meeting. Then Acts chapter 16, they start on their second trip, which zeroes in on this area uh, called Philippi. This initial city where they go is Philippi. That's where the, the jailbreak happened and where they were praying in jail and the jailer gets converted and God's word continues uh, to grow there. And then the next place they go is Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a city just a southwest of Philippi, and here's what happens there. Look at Acts chapter 17 and verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. 
Again, he's using the word of God. He is reasoning, he is explaining, and he is proving. He's working hard to make sure that people understand. He's using reason. He's using study. Here's the the fourth thing that we need to keep in mind if we are going to be a church that's built to last on preaching. The word of God, we must approach it with careful examination. We see that the early church didn't just, you know, flip open their Bible and say whatever. That there was careful study and preparation. There was careful examination of what God's word said. So they're in uh, Thessalonica and Paul is trying to reason and explain and prove some persecution breaks out. So he decides to leave. He goes to the next town, which is called Berea. And what happens in Berea is what I see happening in Brampton. And I am so thankful for. And I pray that we would always be a church that shares the characteristics of the people of Berea. Look at chapter 17, verse 11. One of my favorite verses in the book of Acts. Describing the people of Berea, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. I love this. They received the word with all eagerness. They received the word with all eagerness. I just look around this room right now. I see people leaning forward. I see pens in hands. I see notes being taken. I see people saying, this is important. This isn't just someone talking. This is God's word right now. And he's going to say something to me, to my heart, that is important And I want to respond. I want to be ready. So they received the word eagerly. And for seven years in the history of this church, this room has been filled with people who have received the word eagerly. And I'm so grateful to God for that. And that I love this. Examining the scriptures. As I was reading that verse, I just sort of looked up to see what's happening. I couldn't see any of your faces. As I was reading the verse, you were all reading the verse too. All I could see was the top of everyone's head. Because we are people who are committed to examining the script, careful examination, not just trusting that, that whatever is being said is true, making sure that it's actually in the word of God. And then I love this, they are examining the scriptures daily. This wasn't just a once a week thing. This is a, a personal commitment to study the scripture, to make sure that you understand what it says to see if these things were so. So I'm so grateful for all of you. Love you all so much. See the spirit of the people of Berea here in Brampton. May it always be so. Then in Acts chapter 17, towards the end, he goes down to uh, Athens chapter 18. He finds himself in Corinth, and this is kind of wrapping up his second trip, his second mission trip. He's about to book it back to Antioch, as you can see in chapter 18, verse 18. So he goes back to Antioch, kind of to refresh. This is his sending church, just like we have missionaries who we have sent out to, uh, to Africa. We have missionaries that we support in Quebec, and they come back here. They spend time with us, and then we send them out again. Antioch was like that for Paul. He would go out, and then he would come back. And he gets ready to go on his third trip, which is, which is uh, just touring around all, he doesn't go to any new territories, he just tour, he's touring around to all of the places where he has been, and it all centers around this one place, Ephesus. And most of what is described in his third trip is in this city of Ephesus. Now it talks about someone who was in Ephesus before Paul got there. Look at, look at chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria... I came to Ephesus 
He was an eloquent, eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. What we see in this little snippet, this little story of of, of Apollos and how his ministry got started, is we see a commitment to comprehensive proclamation. Comprehensive proclamation. When you read the description of Apollos there, I mean, it seemed like he had it all together. Verse 24 says that he was eloquent and that he was competent. He could speak very well, but it wasn't just empty words. He had good content. He was competent. He understood the Bible and how it all fit together. But it also says that he was fervent in spirit in verse 25. That he communicated with passion. So it seemed like he had everything going for him. But Priscilla and Aquila, as they listened to him preach and teach, they understood that there was something actually missing from his teaching. And so they took him aside and actually clarified for him, hey man, have you, have, have you thought about this? And this is, this is what Jesus' baptism means. This is what being filled with the Spirit means. And you need to, you need to make sure that you're including that in your preaching. And I, I love the example here. I love Priscilla and Aquila seeing potential in Apollos and taking him aside. They didn't, they didn't embarrass him publicly or call him out. No, they took him aside and they said, hey, let, let's, we want to teach you something here. And I love Apollos' humility that he was willing to receive this instruction from these more mature believers because Apollos wanted to have a comprehensive and all-encompassing, a full, robust, holistic proclamation of God's word. And Apollos, something was lacking. And God used Priscilla and Aquila to fill that in and to help him in that way. And so we we need to be a church. Listen, we need community. We, We need one another in order to have a comprehensive proclamation. After the services, we have people praying here at the front, and some people think that what happens here at the front is just completely unilateral. You come with your problems, and we pray for you, and we teach you the word of God. That's not what always happens. Sometimes people come forward, and whoever was speaking, sometimes they come forward with their Bible, and they say, "Uh, you said this. Did you ever think about this verse? And sometimes... I learn things from the members of our church who love me, love the word of God, and like Priscilla and Aquila, say, have you, have, you considered, have you considered this? Your sermon really hit this point really well, but what about, what about this? That happened in a meeting after the, after the service. Jameson and Hamel painted, pointed something out to me that I was completely blind to, and I'm so thankful for that. 
And so if we are going to be a church that is committed to comprehensive proclamation, we all need to be committed to learning and growing. That's why I'm going back to school part-time. I'm trying to always learn and grow in my understanding of the scripture and how to be able to communicate it. And no one is above correction. No one is above needing to grow and and to hear what God's word is saying. We want to have a comprehensive, fully orb, robust understanding of God's word and we want to teach all of it. Apollos was a great teacher but he wasn't teaching the whole the whole Bible and so we need to make sure that at harvest the whole counsel of God's word is being taught. So then Paul shows up in Ephesus in chapter uh, 19 and I love um, what's described about Paul in verse 9. Chapter 19 In verse 9, he gets kicked out of the synagogue. It says, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Notice this, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. It's kind of a novel idea, eh? Like to rent like public space and then teach the Bible. And then, so he... He's in this space, this public area, and he's proclaiming the truth. But I love this, verse 10. This continued for two years. Sometimes when we read the book of Acts, it's just, it happens so quickly. We just assume that Paul was like, I'm over here, I'm in Ephesus, and I'm over here in Corinth. I'm going over to Berea, and I'm going to Thessalonica. And there were some times where he's moving along quite quickly. But he stayed in Ephesus for two years. Why? Because he wanted the people there to understand everything about what it meant to follow Jesus. It's one thing just to know that Jesus loves you and has forgiven you and given you the gift of eternal life. But what difference does that make in your marriage or in your singleness or in your parenting or in your job or in your finances? That's why we are committed to a comprehensive proclamation that we are not just teaching people how to be saved. We are teaching people how to take their salvation, to take eternal life, and to live out that eternal life in every area of their lives. And it's going to take time. Paul stayed there for two years. But again, look at what happened. The more he invested in the Christians who believed, look at at the result. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Does that mean that every single person came to the hall of Tyrannus? Absolutely not. It means that people came to the hall of Tyrannus, they heard Paul teach, and then they went out because they knew, they knew the word. They spent two years listening to him. And so then they would go out so that that whole region was learning and growing because of Paul's comprehensive proclamation. You follow the subject headings there, chapter 19, there's a riot. He ends up having to lead, uh, leave uh, Ephesus. And chapter 20, he ends up going from Ephesus to Troas. And then in a Troas, check this out, in verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Uh, There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. It's kind of an odd story. 
I'm not sure exactly why it's, why it's in the Bible. I don't know why the detail about the lamps is in there. I don't know if they're kind of throwing Eutychus under the bus. Eutychus eventually gets raised from the dead, so you don't have to feel so sorry for him. He's, but are, why does Luke mention the lamps? Is it because, man, it was so bright in there. I don't know who could fall asleep. Or maybe it was like because the lamps produced heat and kind of smoke, and so it was sort of like this kind of like, still warm, cozy sort of place. I'm not sure if they're trying to show that like Eutychus shouldn't have fallen asleep or that it really made sense that he did, but notice just Paul's commitment just to kind of keep on teaching. And notice the people's commitment just kind of to keep on listening. And if you keep reading, they stayed up all night. And so um, I, I believe in applicational preaching. And so I'm just going to keep going, okay? So we're going to finish Acts. We're going to get into Romans and then do Revelation. We're going to cycle back to Genesis. But listen, if we're going to have comprehensive proclamation, it's going to take time. It's going to take years. Paul stayed in Ephesus for two years. And it's going to take just hours. I'm not saying I'm going to preach for hours, but you need to understand, if you come to Harvest Bible Chapel, sermons are longer here than most places. And that's for a reason. Because we believe in a comprehensive proclamation. And we want people to fully understand what God's word says and how it applies to their lives. There's a great book out right now called Saving Eutychus, which is all about how to make your preaching life-giving so that you don't put people to sleep. And yet it still, yet it still happens. Then Acts chapter 20 ends, Uh, Paul goes down from Troas to Miletus and he gets the elders uh, from uh, from Ephesus to meet him down there and they have this sort of final goodbye because if you look at chapter 21, Paul's going to go back to Jerusalem, he's going to get arrested, then the rest of the book of Acts is Paul's journey uh, to Rome and the reason why Paul went to Rome is because Rome was the center of the world and that was really just the beginning of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Because the gospel went to Rome, the gospel went to Europe. Because the gospel went to Europe, the gospel came to Brampton. And so it's, we are all part of what is unfolding here. What was built in the book of Acts, we are now building on that. And that's how the rest of the book of Acts fits together. But let's just close with Paul's words to the elders at Ephesus. Take a look at verse 26 of, of, of Acts 20. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all. Verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God is comprehensive proclamation. It's saying, I'm, I'm not going to pick through the parts of the Bible that make us more popular. I'm not going to skip over the parts that, that our culture would not agree with. No, Paul said, I'm going I'm to share the whole counsel of God. I want to teach you everything. And he says, I have taught you everything. And that is our goal at Harvest Bible Chapel. To make disciples, baptizing them, and then to teach them everything The things that will make us popular, the things that will make us unpopular, the things that will cause the culture around us to applaud, and the things that will cause the culture around us to want to silence us. The whole counsel of God. And then look at verse verse 32. He says, And now I commend you to God 
and to the word of his grace, notice this, which is able to build you up. How do you build a church that's built to last? You build it with the word of grace, the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible, which is able to build us up. And so what I want us to do as we conclude today, I want us to share, if you've been built up by the word of God during your time here at Harvest Bible Chapel, I want to give you the opportunity to share that with the rest of us. You've heard me talking. You've heard me read a lot of verses today. I want to hear you read some verses today. And I want you to get your Bible in your hand. I want you to think, maybe you've been coming to Harvest for seven years. Maybe you've been coming to Harvest for seven days. Maybe this is your first service. But maybe God has really used a certain verse. Maybe something from the Psalms. Maybe something from the, from the, the Nehemiah series. Maybe something from this changes everything. New Testament, Old Testament. I want you to think about one verse. It might have been something that you memorized in Awana or learned in Harvest Kids. It might be something that Steve shared in youth group. It, I want you to think of one verse that has really pierced your heart and that God has used to really point you to Jesus. And I don't want you to come up and to give a sermon about it. I just want you to come up and read it. And so what I'm looking for, as, as this service wraps up, we can all just get on our feet right now, but some of us, I want to get on our feet and to actually come forward with your Bible or your tablet or your phone or whatever in your hand with a verse that you want to share with the rest of the church that has meant so much to you. So let's all stand together. And I'm looking for, I said, about seven to ten people to come meet me right here and let's share and proclaim the living and active word of God together. So let's pray right now. God, we pray that your spirit would move. And God, we pray that you would be leading people to uh, certain verses, leading them uh, uh, by their by their memory, by their study of your word to be able to build up and to encourage the church right now, God. Lord, I pray that the church will be built up and encouraged as your word is read, Lord, as your word is proclaimed because it is living and active. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, James. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.